Two wrestling fans to talk about the matches that may be considered the truly classics of its genre. We are going through every match that Dave Meltzer of the Wrestling Observer has rated five stars. But who are we? Why, we're the co-hosts of Let Me Tell You Something. It's myself, Lorcan Mullen, and my co-host... Simon Cross. And we are doing the final chapter... Well, it's not really a trilogy of matches insofar as, like, like you know, we've had recently with, like, your Kazuchika Okada, Kenny Omega series. There have been many matches that these guys have had between each other. These are just the three that were maybe televised or of larger scale events and we um, and that Dave Meltzer thought were of the tip-top of what they've done. And it is the third and final match that we'll be reviewing between Ric Flair and Barry Windham for the NWA World Heavyweight title. The first one was at the NWA Battle for the Belts in February of 1986. The second one was at a taping of Worldwide Wrestling in January of 1987. And now it's the Crockett Cup tournament, tag team tournament of April 1987. Just a few short weeks after Andre the Giant was body slammed by Hulk Hogan in front of 9.7 million people at the Pontiac Silverdome. A 9.7 earthquake on the Richter scale happened as a result of that body slam. At least that's what (laughs) Hulk Hogan said in his autobiography. Um, But we're watching yet another match for the NWA World title and another match between Ric Flair and Barry Windham. And how much more is there left to add, Simon, now, just based on this match? What what, what more do you have to say? First of all, whilst we were talking about uh, Dusty Rhodes' commentary in the previous match and... Gordon Soley's commentary in the match before this. This is a fan cam match. This is a literal fan from one camera angle, a few, I don't know, maybe 20 rows back or so. In the uh, corner as well. Corner. It's a different kind of experience watching a wrestling match. What did you think of it? Um, I liked it in terms of the sense, because there wasn't com- commentary, it was sort of stripped back and you could hear more how the crowd are responding and the crowd sound different from like within the crowd mm. you know what i mean because usually like it's mic'd up the ring it's mic'd up and it's the ring you're hearing and then like the the microphone's pointed towards the crowd mm. whereas this microphone is surrounded by the crowd mm. so it the crowd sounded different in i don't know it's like echoey or there was just a different sound quality to it i they also sound a bit more mixed in in who they're rooting for Oh, yeah, I couldn't tell who the fan favourite was in this match. Yeah, because in the previous match, like I said, Barry Windham was getting cheered when he reversed a hammerlock. That's not to say there weren't Ric Flair fans. There always are and always will be Ric Flair fans in an NWA crowd. But, like, in this one, when when uh, Barry Windham gets announced as being from Sweetwater, Texas, a fair few boos come uh, yeah. echo around the arena. But it still seems like Barry Windham is probably the more favourite of the fans, but Ric Flair has his following... Um, I'd say like yeah, it's sixty four. I would. Say. I will also say we were talking about Barry Windham maybe not being the most genetically gifted as far as physiques go. He doesn't necessarily have the uh, natural uh, genetics that helped Lex Luger and Sting, his two contemporaries of this time, as rivals for Ric Flair. But he definitely looks his most muscular in this match. I thought. Oh yeah, it's bigger. Compared, especially compared to Battle of the Belts, where he's a lot more lanky, a lot less definition. He's definitely in his upper body. He seems a bit more. He's thicker. I think he was hanging out with Lex Luger maybe a bit in those days. Yeah. Maybe less time around Dusty and more time with Lex. 
And um, he's sort of out the belt. He's using that newfound athleticism. He's trying to athletically dominate Flair. But Flair, this out of the three matches we've discussed, this is the one where Flair is the most heelish, I'd say. He's the most aggressive. And also, we get the classic Ric Flair against the bigger guy spots that you were synonymous with his matches with Sting and also Lex Luger. He immediately charges him and attacks him, hits him with a chop, and Barry Windham no-sells it. Mm. That was something Sting always Just did. Just walks through it, yeah. yeah. Sting even did it when he was a heel once and Flair was a face, which is maybe another example of Flair's lack of adaptability that <laughs> Bret Hart took him to task for. Um, yeah, but Windham no-sells the opening chops. He dominates Ric Flair... It's it's four to the quicker pace. This match is the shortest of the three matches we've covered. It's about there is one cut that we have in the match, but I think it's a fairly short yeah. chunk of the match that we miss. So it looks like it's around thirty, maybe less than thirty minutes. The Battle of the Belts match was about forty six. The uh, the Battle of the Belts match was somewhere between forty five and fifty. The the January match was somewhere around thirty five to forty minutes, including the. Matt, whatever they did Free match breaks. Yeah. Uh, but this one this one's over in about 28 30 30 minutes I would say and, and again it, they fit more in so it gives them more time mm, uh, it gives them it, less time to fit the same amount of action in almost they fit more into this match but this match feels slower I don't know if you picked up on that I don't know I, I recall it being faster Especially yeah. compared to the Battle of the Belts match. Thing is, I unfortunately watched them a bit out of sequence. I watched the first match, then the third match, then the second match. Yeah. So I, my my chronology in my head is a bit weirder than everyone else than everyone else's will be if they've been following along with us. Yeah. Whereas I I did watch them in chronological order, and I don't know. To me, match three just feels slower than match two. Mm. I don't know if it's like the camera angles. I've, as well as the in-ring action, but maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. What it is like the frenetic cuts of the camera that sort of refreshes your brain. Yeah. And so you're kind of looking at it anew and and you're having to be a bit more alert. Whereas this one, you are just watching it from one camera angle and it can be quite a a test of your concentration to do that. Yeah. And you didn't have the commentary either that maybe helps you keep it along. I mean, we didn't really talk about it that much, but Dusty Rhodes' commentary in the second match was a bit all over the place. He was just saying anything to fill the silence, yeah, I think. and he was really impressed by the fact that we were live and in colour. He really wanted yeah. to hammer that home. Uh, Shivani was, like, you know, good as his foil, but... How do you find watching wrestling without commentary? Um, Obviously, when you go to a live match, you... you, you yeah, yeah, time, but, live, but live's different in the sense of because you're part of the crowd you don't notice it it's like watching live football whereas if you watch football in a pub and the sound muted weird um i would rather watch football with the sound muted if it means not listening to the guy mowbray so. <laughs> and i'm the same with wrestling if it features matt striker so yeah well we've all got our commentators that we hate um but by and large, though, you wouldn't pick no commentary like if you were watching on TV. Whereas when you're part of that live crowd, it's different. You don't need it in a sense. What There's sort think... of a feel in the arena. What did you think of the sort of comedy spot early on in the match where Ric Flair does the classic throw him into the ropes and you're expecting the drop down leapfrog spots. But he does the drop down and Wyndham just stops and gets him in a headlock. 
Yeah. What did you know I... that? That was like some almost like an indie like PWG spot almost. They they play it up more, but I put it down more to maybe I was just like looking for rose tinted glasses. I put it down to more of over familiarity with each other and like Wyndham knows what's coming. Yeah. Very early on, Flair puts his foot on the ropes again. This was something that we observed, especially in the first match, that it wasn't a case of, like we say, foot on the ropes now being a sign of exhaustion and not having the energy to do a full kick out. Instead, it's uh, Ric Flair being Definitely aware of the ring. Move. Yeah, it was a tactical move. As well um, as his wooing. He's trying to get into Wyndham's head a lot more in yeah, this match. Yeah, yeah, it was a lot more wooing and strutting and, and all that sort of stuff. I mean, he doesn't woo at all in the first match that I can recall. Maybe he doesn't I think once. in the second. No, he doesn't. I know he does in the second at one point. Um, there was also another time where it looked like there was a bit of a blown spot where Barry Windham looked like he should have gone for a drop toe hold, and he didn't, and Ric Flair just kind of left the ring. Yeah, it just sort it's of bails out. Yeah. Three great rest- these three great matches with these two great wrestlers, and there's still little blown spots here and there that we notice just to our, maybe our nitpicky analytical minds. You know, I guess it just yeah. shows that everyone can screw up. It's just... You, know, you don't notice at the goes. time if you're like, mm. in, like, you know, if you're in the zone, you're just not going to notice. Similarly to last time, Flair hits a stun gun. He hits it a lot better this time, and that helps him take control. One thing, here's one of my notes. There was loose wiring all over the floor on the outside. That is a health and safety nightmare. Just traipsed everywhere. Did uh, you well, it's, it? again, it's the eighties. <laughs> um, what I it will was say. Acceptable in. I can't remember. I, no, it, it wasn't this match, but it was the second match. If we were talking from a health and safety standpoint, I know we're crossing back and forth a lot, but you, I just have to mention this. Uh, how flimsy was the barricade in the second match? It was just yeah. three bits of like pole. Yeah, yeah. Very nasty as well when they get whipped into it. But they're quite like the New Japan barricades are, although they are a bit more sturdy. Yeah. But uh, um, yeah. I just, it, it's a lot of the same, really. There's a lot of the same. There's one thing I did notice that was different. I think Ric Flair hits a low blow a couple of times in this match that he didn't, he didn't really, he didn't do at all in the first two matches. He cheat, it's like he's cheating more and more with each episode, with each, uh, in, uh, with each match. Yeah, he's trying any, I think, I think he's getting to the point now he just wants rid of Wyndham. Um, and Wyndham knows more and more about his games so and maybe he's got to go deeper and deeper into his box of tricks to go against him. I think that's the story being told across the arc. Or maybe I'm just looking for something that isn't there. But yeah. uh, It was interesting also, like I said, there's just speeding through it all a lot more. Like, um, there's a sleeper hold spot that's been all three of the matches. In the first match, Barry Windham's in it for a long time, then he's able to charge into the corner and that knocks Ric Flair in the face. He goes face first into the buckle. In the second match, he sort of slips out of it underneath and hits him with a kick. Whereas in the third match, he does force him into the corner again, but he does it almost immediately. There's yeah. less time, just, you know, it's it's a it's a quicker match. Yeah, I, again, didn't feel quicker, but in terms of like, in ring time, I, I know what you mean about the sleeper spot, because he's in it for a brief moment, um, Wyndham's got Flair in it, and then he just bounces him off the turnbuckle and just mm. gets him back into mm. it again as well. Flair does his flair flops again. He does one to the front, one to the back, which again he did. It's a very noticeable match. flop this time yeah, as well. Yeah. Um, oh, he goes. He, tr- both of them go for pile drivers on in on the outside, uh, yeah. and Ric Flair just kind of stops doing it because the ref tells him not to. Whereas with Barry Windham, he gets back dropped over the over. Oh, onto all those exposed wires. Mm, yeah, yeah. 
<laughs> That's where Barry Windham got angry. You crazy man! I could have slipped. Oh, I think the finish. It was the same principle, just a different methodology as well with the finish. So, in a sense, we've not really seen anything new there. Although it's the greatest example of Flair cheat cheating. Because I'll be honest, I didn't really catch the low blows. I didn't see them. I'll take your word that they were there. In this match. Yeah. Um, but the way the match finishes, uh, it just, it just shows that Flair is just desperate to get out of there. Like he's, yeah. it's, it's not, it's a, it's I've survived. It's like, this dude is better than me. It's one of the ways that Ric Flair rarely wins matches. I remember the first Ric Flair match I ever saw this was this finish, which was against Tito Santana at the uh, Royal Albert Hall Battle Royal show. And that's Tito Santana goes for the O'Connor roll, roll up for, through, and they go into the corner as opposed to. Uh, off the ropes like you usually do with that and Ric Flair pulls him by the trunks and holds on to the trunks that gives him the leverage to keep Barry Windham down for the three counts so it's like the only way that Ric Flair can win these things is through holding the tights or something yeah but yeah Ric Flair just taunts the crowd it feels more like a house show match I don't know if that's what I think it was really yeah the other one was televised and it was working to a television time limit Um, it seems that way because I, I don't think they're hitting the same intensity I think it's also that might be because it was the uh, Crockett Cup, so it was actually they were almost they weren't an, an afterthought, but they weren't the key focus of that yeah. tour of those events. The key thing of that event was yeah, the, you tor- don't the tag team tournament and the America's team of uh, Dusty Rhodes and Nikita Koloff winning it for Magnum TA, the recently retired Magnum TA. Um, yeah, it's just you get all the things missile drop kick from Barry Windham. Um, both people doing a figure that. four. Yes, he does, but Flair's foot's on the rope again. Classic. Cra- it's crazy how susceptible the crowd is to it, really. Yeah. Like, they really think it could happen. And and again, you wish you had that innocence now, I suppose. Like, as we would read the match, he's so close to the rope, do you think the only reason you're that close to the rope it's is the rope. your foot on the rope? Yeah, I mean, I think it's because foot on the rope, as we've covered previously... It's very rarely used now, mm. and when it is used, it's used as it's just that it's like oh, positioning's poor. We're just going to a next spot. Like the guys hit his finish. It protects the finish. It is what it is, kind what of thing. Think, what did you think about how very late into the match? Like my penultimate note is them that they do like the headlock takedown, head scissors, bridge out of a of a yeah. Backslide spot. What do you think of that? And and you saw it in you saw it in the first match as well that they did like the lock up after twenty five thirty minutes of the match. It's very weird. I think it's I think it's like Flair's trying to reestablish his technical dominance. I would love. To... I would love to see that more. Actually, I think the idea of them being so exhausted that they set off and that they're back where they started almost. Yeah. yeah, you see a great they, counter. They to, almost um, go back to it, like like you imagine, like thirty minutes into a Dean Ambrose, Seth Rollins match, and they've been hitting each other with everything, and then they're, they're utterly exhausted. They're barely making it to their feet, and because neither one holds the advantage, they just lock up again and yeah. go into the headlocks and the and the head scissors. I was like, the problem is that where we record this, it might have already happened. But my fantasy booking final, final ending of the Johnny Gargano, Tommaso Ciampa feud is for Johnny to suddenly become Johnny Wrestling again and to just out-wrestle Tommaso Ciampa 
like in the ring, like with headlocks yeah. and head scissors, like that. That's the finish to their match. He doesn't brawl. He doesn't. He isn't super violent psycho killer. He he's not trying to fight him at his own game. He goes back to what he's best at, which are all the chain wrestling moves, and he and he pins him with a cradle or something. You know, I like yeah. the only time time I can think of them doing that was um a Ring of Honor match between Nigel McGuinness and Chad Collier against BJ Whitmer and Dan Math. And it was it was it was an ideological feud at the time between Mick Foley and Ricky Steamboat, where Ricky Steamboat was for pure wrestling, Mick Foley was for hardcore wrestling, and so McGuinness and Collier were like the pure wrestlers, Whitmer and Math were the hardcore wrestlers, and it starts off and they're like the 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 pure wrestlers just out wrestling the hardcore wrestlers, so Mick Foley tells them to just fight them, and so then they start brawling, and then Steamboat comes out and says you can't brawl with them. And so Nigel McGuinness ends up like winning with like wrestling moves and, and going back to what he knew. Yeah. I find that interesting, like I said, to just go back to it, the idea of them just get going back to square one. Yeah, well, we sort of again. We sort of saw a sort of opposite of that in one of the counters we see towards the end, where um I can't remember if it's a bridge or a, or a roll-up, I think, that Wyndham gets on Flair. And Flair just responds by absolutely nutting him <laughs> with, like, a massive headbutt. And I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> I would not have expected that from Flair. Yeah. But, Flair just uh, wants the crowd more, I, I noticed. Again, he just works the crowd more. When he gets caught with his classic being slammed off the top rope, the reason he gets caught is because he spends too much time yelling at the fans and it gives yeah. them enough time to recover and get up and throw him over the t- throw him off um also we haven't really talked about it but i just want to say rick uh Wyndham's flying lariat is amazing he, he so much of the ring is covered well like, he doesn't they they start on opposite ends of the ring when he whips him they meet in the middle and Wyndham flies so far that he ends up on the other end of the ring and flares hit so hard he ends up on the other end of the ring, you know? I think one of the beauties of it is he doesn't go with his arm extended all the way. Mm. It's sort of like short arm lariat. It's like a shouldery sort of lariat. The first time I saw it back in like um the first match of the series we covered, I thought it was a shoulder tackle. It's only on closer reflection that I actually saw it's more but of it's a lariat. It's interesting again that it's, in spite of his size, he was so agile because when you do when you, your finisher is a lariat of the Stan Hansen JBL variety, you're doing it from a standing position and you stay stood and you like hit them hard. Whereas Wyndham yeah. adds the flying element to it, the idea that he's so agile that he can do it, but like just go. Just cover so much land, you know. When yeah, he does just it. get that rapid acceleration acceleration from mm. jumping into the air. Mm. Whereas you're right, Hansons and uh, JBLs lariats are more just like I'm going to keep you. my feet planted. <laughs> I'm just going to plow through you. <laughs> yeah, I don't know where you are, so I'm just going to flail madly. I mean, even like Luke Harper's, he is a similar vein to JBL and Hanson, but he's thrown the spin in to like mm. sort of generate power from that. Yeah. It's like yeah, it's like his it's, it's his equivalent of a rocker's Shawn Michaels sort of move. Yeah, Barry Windham. So I don't have much more to add other than what do you think of Barry Windham? Um, I like him. I, I like his in ring ability. I think I want to see him with someone else other than Flair now. Mm. Um, what do you think of as a heel? Maybe some people didn't like him as much that he. He didn't, you know, maybe that was... He could work both ways, 
but that he was more deliberate as a heel and that it didn't necessarily it, the pace he worked wasn't as good I, it, it'll be up to you to watch and, and make yeah. your own mind up um it's a, well yeah as i say it's a tough one um i would say i wouldn't have like spoke about barry windham or i wouldn't have like actively seeked out any extra barry windham matches um i will now I think um, if you were gonna, I think if you were gonna rank Ric Flair's greatest opponents of all time, I think Barry Windham could be in the top five. Yeah, yeah, I could see that after this trilogy, I could with, see with that with like Rick's Ricky Steamboat and Harley Race mm. and Dusty Rhodes and Sting. Yeah, I think he justified his inclusion in the uh, Ultimate Ric Flair DVD collection. Put it that yeah. way. Well, at one point. Um... Match number two in this series took over as best match of the series so far from its previous um, holder, the uh, Lioness versus uh, Jaguar Yakota match. And I, so, I would still rate it as the best of those three, the, the trilogy. Oh, definitely. Watched. Definitely. Match number two is really, really, really good. I, I also, say, because we didn't give that five stars kind of gives away the key question of we wouldn't give this five stars. No, no, I wouldn't. Um... I just didn't think the pacing was right. The feel was right for this match. Do you think also just the fact that pretty much every spot we've already seen in the two matches... That hurt it. You? Yeah. That did. Um, could could you say that we're not looking at each individual match on its merits? Yes, potentially. Because but... like, those matches are like months bet- between each other and you didn't yeah. have you didn't have everything on, on demand and DVD anyway, so you might not have even caught that match before. Yeah. But on the flip side, we're looking at what this match is in the modern day because we've covered it the fact before that matches we've seen in this series we may have given five stars to if we've seen them at the time. Mm. But we're looking with the eyes that we have and as a result, these matches just don't quite hit that yet. Mm. We've come close on a couple of occasions but we're not... This match isn't the one that's making me think five mm. it's it just isn't okay but i uh, look if you were to watch any of these matches you wouldn't be disappointed we would say watch the second match in the series above the other two but if you saw any of these three matches you'd have a good time oh yeah no um you'd you'd, you'd enjoy yourself but as i say if you had to pick one number two definitely yeah so that's the end of this series of matches for rick flair and barry windham but They both shall return in future episodes. But the next episode that we have, we're going back to Japan as we are going to all Japan once again. And we're going to see the debut of another wrestler that will be a mainstay in this going forward. Toshiaki Kawada teams up with Genichiro Tenru. They will be facing Stan Hansen and his fellow Gaijin uh, tag team partner, Terry Gordy. Ooh, and, Gordy. Yeah, and it's going to be a slobber knocker, I would imagine. I know how big Gordy is. Um, and having seen a Stan Hansen match already uh, in this series. And a 10-room match. And a 10-room match. We're going to see just some big dudes wail on each other. <laughs> yep, but until then, if people want to get in touch with me, it's Lorcan Mullen, L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A for Apple, N for Nipple. <laughs> that's all I could think of in that moment <laughs> no, don't judge me 
Uh, that's my Twitter, Facebook, email, if you put an at Gmail at the end of it, letterboxed, Instagram. That's not nipple at gmail.com, that was no. the spelling. But if you want to go nipple at gmail.com, you'll get some interesting replies, I'm sure. Let's see who it goes to, why not? Mm-hmm. And so people get for the in week. touch with you. People can get in touch with me mainly on Twitter, where I'm known as Simon Cross Free. Uh, so known because we are at the end of our trilogy of a... Barry Windham and Ric Flair matches. And yes, I know I used the previous analogy, but do give allowances. <laughs> We've got to make a hundred more of these. So, you know, they're not I all going to be so doozers. More green. They're not all going to so. be crackers, you know. No. But until then, I've been Lorcan Mullen. I've been Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a five-star time until the next